Good morning. Good to have you all in worship this morning. A couple of things that I want to say before we really get started. Um, number one, I thought yesterday, if you were here, if you were watching online, uh, yesterday was God honoring and uh, as well as uh, Jay honoring. And you know what? That's not altogether wrong. Uh, the Bible says, uh, give honor to those to whom honor is due and praise to whom praise. So we praised and we honored God Almighty, but we also thank God for Jay and, and the life that he had lived. And Danny and Carmen, our hearts still go out to you guys. Dan and the rest of the family, love you so much. That's good. Um, the other thing I wanted to say before we really got a good start on this is that very often I would take, when I was at Sunbury for the 20 years I was there, I would take advantage of the holidays and preach on that topic. Um, and uh, today I'm not going to do that. Uh, today is Valentine's Day. If you guys didn't get an advance warning, it's just too late now, okay? Um, I don't know what color you call this shirt, but I called it red when I put it on. Somebody called it pink. I'm okay with that because I am secure in my manhood. I am just fine with that too. But uh, today is Valentine's Day. Uh, it is a love day, relationship kind of day that we would uh, pay special attention to and, and thankful to Hallmark that sets all those things up for us. But today, I uh, wanted to continue in a three-part series on why do I believe that the Bible is God's Word? I believe the Word of God has been under attack ever since it's been written, okay, ever since the beginning of time. Because even in the garden... Satan said, did God really say? And he kind of places that doubt in the mind of Adam and Eve. And so I think from the beginning of time, it's always been questioned, does God really know what he's talking about? Has God put together the truth and has he preserved it for us? And I think the answer is a resounding yes, he has. So today might be a, a little more of a teaching fashion uh, but I think it's just so critical. I have put together a, a pamphlet that you are welcome to when you leave this morning. I'll tell you what, it's not just for the adults, it's for the teens and anybody that just wants something that might help them in a very practical way to say, okay, I believe the Bible is God's word and here's why. And so there will not be a test on it, I can assure you that, but it, you are welcome to one. They've been bought and paid for by the church here and they're available on your way out. So please... Take advantage of those. Would you bow with me for a word of prayer, and then we'll get started. Father, we thank you so much for the church, um, that we can get together, we can encourage one another, we can challenge, rebuke when needed, and teach. Father, we thank you that your word is available for all those kind of things that we need in life from one time to another. For those who are here, for those who are online, for those who will be watching listening a little bit later, we just pray a very special blessing, your spirit to ours. Help us understand what it is that we need to know, that we can be confident of the faith in which we walk. We praise you and we thank you in the name of Jesus. Amen. I pledge allegiance to the Bible, God's holy word. A lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Its words will I hide in my heart that I might not sin against God. 
When I was in VBS, maybe you did as well, we gave a pledge to the American flag, then to the Christian flag, and then to the Bible. We held the Bible up and we pledged to it. How many of you did the same thing? Yeah. You know those words. They come from the longest psalm in the Bible. Maybe you already know this. If you got the number in your mind, I, I want to confirm, okay? It comes from Psalm 119. And it's the longest chapter in the Bible. The reason for that is that it takes each of the Hebrew letters and works through it. It takes the Aleph, or our A. Eight lines, one stanza. And it begins each one of those with that letter A. Then it goes the next eight lines with the letter B, C. goes that way. It goes all the way through the Hebrew alphabet in that way. And that's why it is the longest chapter in the Bible. But maybe you don't know this part, and I won't, uh, no extra charge for this part, okay? We're just kind of going to a side tangent here for a minute. The shortest chapter in the Bible. Maybe you have a number in mind, but it's Psalm 117, just two psalms in front of the longest chapter in the Bible. Now, if you want to impress all your friends, okay, it only has two verses, if you want to impress all your friends, go home this week, memorize those two verses, then tell everybody you know, I just memorized a chapter of the Bible. All right? They will be so impressed. Don't tell them what chapter it was. Just That's the shortest chapter of the Bible, 117. And just for kind of historical sake, the Gutenberg Press was invented around 1450, and so we didn't even have a printing press until that period of time. It was in the 1500s that then the Bible was divided into chapters and verses for us. Before that time, they had to unroll the scroll and roll it back, and they got to the part where they are turning pages now as well. But in the 1500s, they divided it into chapters and verses, and it makes things just a whole lot easier for us. And so that's kind of where we are. 117 is not just the shortest chapter in the Bible, but it's also the middle chapter. In the, now you can really impress all your friends, okay? Longest, 119. Shortest and middle chapter is 117, all right? There is such a healthy respect for the Word of God, for especially the Orthodox Jew. And when they began to be able to have the Word of God in their homes, there were a couple of traditions that they would observe that gave respect to God's word. For the longest time, it was handwritten copies. And so even in Europe, they would chain the Bible to the pulpit so people would not steal it. We somewhat take it for granted because probably most of our homes, we have three, four, maybe five Bibles. But not back in that day. And when they began, the Jewish people began to have the Word of God in their home, there were a couple of things that they observed that I kind of tagged on to. Number one, when they put it up in their home, they would give it the highest place in the house. Because nothing is above God's Word. And that's what they would do. When they would bring it down to read it or whatever, they would never place anything on top of it. If they put it on a coffee table or whatever. And to this day, I somewhat observe that in the fact that if the Bible is there, I'm carrying other books, that Bible goes on top. I never put anything on top of the Word of God. It just 
for me, I appreciated that kind of respect for God's word, and I've kind of engrafted that into my way of living as well. Nothing's going to beat the word of God. Amen? Nothing, nothing. And so that's what they would do in respect for. And if they accidentally dropped the Bible, the Old Testament for them, they would pick it up, they would dust it off, and then they would kiss it, and then they would put it back in a place of, of honor and respect. And to this day, I find myself just at different times, not always, but different times if I drop it, I'll just kind of dust it off, I'll kiss it, and I'll put it back. It's nothing that the Bible says we need to do, but it's just that idea of respect for God's word. That's not always been the case, and it will not always be the case, because it's not just a God who's alive, but there's a counterfeiter called Satan who's also alive. And he will do whatever he can to distort the word of truth. That's who he is. And so all the way from the beginning of time, but also one in particular in the book of Jeremiah we read, Jeremiah had been cast out of the kingdom. He was not allowed to come in or he was going to die. That was by order of the king. So he had gone from Jerusalem, but God said, you write this book. And he did. And he had his servant, the one who was actually the scribe for him, writing it down. God would give it to Jeremiah. Gave, Jeremiah gave it to Barak, and he would write it down. He then took Jeremiah's book, brought it into the town square, began to read it. And the people understood, oh my goodness, we are so far from God. And we need to change some things. There was some repentance going on. There were some different things. And then some officials from the king found out what was going on. They listened and they said, oh my goodness, we need to take this to the king. So they did. Took it to the king and he had it read to him. And here's what the word of God says. Whenever Jehudai had read three or four columns of the scroll, the king cut them off with a scribe's knife and threw them into the fire pot until the entire scroll was burned in the fire. And the king and all of his attendants who heard all of these words showed no fear. When we don't have the truth of the word of God, there is no fear because your good is just as good as my good and your right is just as right as mine and and you're wrong. And we all get to be whatever we want to in our own eyes. But when the word of God comes out and says, this is the truth, there needs to be a good, healthy fear. But there was none for the king. So it shows you the contrast of what's going on. I want to show you from the word of God just different signposts that God would put in his word, and he'd say, don't mess with it. Don't add, don't take away, don't mess with my word. In Deuteronomy in chapter 4, it says, do not add to what I command you and do not subtract from it. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, it goes through this entire chapter and it says, if a prophet is speaking what I've told him to speak to you, you better listen. And then he flips it and he says, but if a prophet speaks to you anything that I have not given him to speak, you put him to death. God doesn't like his authority being taken advantage of and abused. And he repeats it and he says, if he adds anything, if he puts in, how are we going to know if it's true? Well, if it doesn't come to pass, it's not true. I didn't say it. And if he is a false prophet, 
Do not be afraid of him. Put him to death. God's word, not to be rivaled by man. Proverbs in chapter 30 says, Every word of God is flawless. Do not add to his word. And then in the New Testament in Galatians in chapter 1, Paul is writing to the church and he says this. He said, if we, and he's talking about the apostles, if we, or even an angel from heaven, were to come down to you and preach some other gospel than what you've already received, let him be, and the Greek word is anathema. And that means, let him be damned. It is that strong, folks. It is the strongest word that you can find in the Greek. When it said, and then he repeats it. I'll say it again. If we or an angel from heaven preaches to you anything other than what you've already received, let him be anathema. That's how strong God feels about the word that he's given to us. And then in the last book, the last chapter, the last signpost for us. And it's up on the screen. Would you read this with me, please? I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds anything to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes words away from this book of prophecy, God will take away from him his share in the tree of life, and in the holy city, which are described in this book. I'm not messing with it, are you? It's God's word. I have no authority outside of the word of God. And the responsibility that I have with the word of God is to present it as he intended it. Not to take parts that I like, discard the rest, not to reinterpret, but to help you to understand the truth that God has intended all along the way. How was the Bible put together? Some of these things are in the booklet that you can get on your way out, and some of them I'm going to go into a little bit of detail that, that is not included in it. But just in a very basic way, how is the Bible actually put together? It's unlike any other book. It is. This book, it was put together over a time period of 1,500 years by over 40 different authors on three different continents in three different languages and by men of all different kinds of profession. Prophets, there was a priest, there was a shepherd, there was a cupbearer to the king, there was a king, we go to the New Testament, there was a fisherman, there was a doctor, there was a tax collector. I mean, we're talking about all kinds of different professions. There's no book that's ever been put together like this. It's God's word, and we would expect it to be unlike any other book. It is completely unique. What about other religions and the books that they use? And why are some books, writings, left out? First of all, when they put the books together and, and kind of built together the New Testament, 
And I, I had taken a class in graduate school about manuscripts, ancient manuscripts, and, and how they would actually, kind of in a very general way, they'd put together three categories. These are by the apostles, apostles sanctioned, okay, that kind of thing. These are spurious, they're false, no doubt about them. And they would put a handful in the middle to consider. They weren't in a hurry to do this. But they would put these things together and then very carefully. Now what about things like the gospel according to Thomas? All right, that's out there. There are other books that we've found from second, third centuries later, that kind of a thing. How do we know they're not original? And there are different tests that along the way they would say, oh, this doesn't go because. Here's a good example. The Apocrypha, the Catholic Church would have the Old Testament, New Testament, and then some extra books that were not included in what we use today. All right? But in one of the books, just as an example, there is someone who is praying to a dead person, praying to the dead. You know what the Old Testament says? If you pray to the dead, what happens to you? It's the death penalty. If you were to pray to the dead, you die. And in the Old Testament, he says, why would you want to go to somebody else other than me? Right? And we have today the Son of God that we can pray through. Why would you ever want to go through anyone else? And so one of these books has the example of somebody praying to the dead. Well, that's not God. And they would rule out different books like this, okay? Just different characteristics of, and they would be very cautious about what they would include. What about other religions, such as, what about the Book of Mormon? That looks like the Bible. It's so far from, and, and here's the truth of it. You know how the Book of Mormon got its start, not how it was founded? Joseph Smith, in the state of New York, as a teenager, he would go out and he would hunt for gold and he would use peak stones and, and other ways of divining where he could find some gold and where he could find some treasures and where he could... That's, that was his life. In his early 20s then, he discovered these golden plates. And along with the golden plates, there were magic glasses. And he could put on these glasses and he could translate the golden plates. And that's how the Book of Mormon came. One man doing all the work, and now here it is. And the front of the Book of Mormon, and these are not to disparage people, but to help you understand the truth, all right? Because they claim that the Book of Mormon is equal to the Old Testament and New Testament. They claim that the Doctrine and Covenants and the Pearl of Great Price, two other books, are equal to the Old and the New Testament. That's what they claim. In the Book of Mormon, in the very front of it, they have seven witnesses that are there. They're, we saw these golden plates. They're still there today. The problem with that is, four of them got kicked out of the Mormon church. One for being a horse thief, and I'll tell you what, back then, it wasn't just like stealing the pony from the backyard. To be a horse thief meant you took someone's livelihood. You took their car. You took what they needed. And it was hanging. It was death for being a horse thief. 
One was a horse thief. Another was found to be a counterfeiter. Serious. All four of them found to be and kicked out of the Mormon church. They're still used as part of the seven witnesses in the front of the book. But all four of them later recant and say, we never did see it. We never saw any golden plates. It's interesting. Is that the way the New Testament starts? <laughs> These guys give their lives for the truth. That's different. The Book of Mormon may look like, but it is not on the same level as the New Testament or Old Testament. The Catholics have the extra books. The Mormons have extra books. I'll tell you what, when I talk with different people who have been raised in these kind of settings, this is what I do. I go to the Old Testament, I go to the New Testament, primarily New Testament, because they believe the New Testament. They just have these extra books. So what I understand, and what we can use as common ground, is just the New Testament. And we can bring them to Christ through that, okay? So I try not to get caught up in the rest of the stuff, but I think you need to know the difference. What about the Koran? The holy book that the Muslims would use. That book, Muhammad, 10 years, went off in a cave and came out with the Koran. One man, 10 years, and you have the Koran. Not at all like what we have, the Word of God. It's amazing what Satan will do to pervert the truth of God's Word. It just is. And if he can confuse the church, if he can confuse the world, if he can make them, when, well, I guess we really can't come to the truth, can we? Yes, we can. Yes, we can. I was in a class with Dr. Foster, and Dr. Foster had a Ph.D. from Harvard. Guy was, <laughs> I enjoyed him because he was also an athlete. Most people don't know this, but he was their star running back for Western Hills High School. Set records, track star, but he was also very brilliant. And I'll tell you what, not just a smart guy, but he was smart and humble. That's a tough combination to find. It really is. But when we were talking one time in class, and he goes, you know what, if I were to boil it down to four or five reasons why I believe that this is God's word, and then he paused, and I think that's what made me take notice. He paused and he said, this probably wouldn't fly at Harvard. They'd want something more scholarly than this. But he said, the number one reason is because the God that I serve if he can create something from nothing, the world, if he can create you and me from the dust of the ground and breathe life into us, if the Son of God can become man as one of us and can heal, raise the dead, himself prophesy and be raised from the dead, if that's the kind of God that I serve, then it's no big deal for him to put together the truth in a book and then preserve it. And he said, I know that wouldn't fly, but I think that's the number one reason for me. And I'm with him. I just am. If we believe that God can do all of those things, then why not such a simple thing as bringing the standard of truth by his word?
There are several things that Satan tries to do in order to mess with the truth. Pilate said, what is truth? And Jesus said, I'm the truth, didn't he? I am the way, and I'm the truth, and I'm the life. God deals in truth. Whether we like what he has to say or not, he deals with truth. And he will always be truthful with you and me. Ways to pervert the word of God, you can take away from it. You can add to it. But here's the third way. Romans in chapter 1 says so many people have gotten away from God because of this. Number one, they forgot to thank God. You just kind of got away from being appreciative of who God is and what he's done for you. And then it says this. It wasn't like they didn't have the truth. In Romans 1, it says they suppressed the truth. They just didn't want to hear it. And a whole lot of our society just does not want to hear the truth. And so they'll put other books on top of it. They'll put other philosophers. They'll put, just relegate the Bible as a reference book alongside of others. They suppress the truth. But then after suppressing the truth, Romans 1 says they then exchanged the truth for a lie. Because they'd rather believe the lie than they would the truth. Because the lie fits their lifestyle better than the truth. People will suppress and then exchange the truth. You know where the proof is? You read it. If you don't know where to start, man. My favorite book, I don't know about you, Danny, but my favorite gospel in particular is Luke. Luke is so cool. He just is. He brings in the birth of Jesus, but not just that. He brings in the behind-the-scene kind of things that I, oh, I had never thought about that. How in the world does Jesus get the food? How do the disciples, how are they fed? How are they clothed? And then all of a sudden it, it points out these women who are supplying their every need. That's kind of cool. The other three don't kind of list that. It, it brings up that these ladies are there at the end, at the cross. I wonder where the rest of the disciples are. Doesn't point them out. And it's just kind of, I love Luke because it just brings different things out for me. If you don't know where to start, start with one of the Gospels. And one of my favorites is the Gospel of Luke. Why there? Because you will fall in love with Jesus. And that's where it is. You know, I love the Word of God. But I'm not in love with the Word of God. I'm in love with Jesus. I love communion that we shared together. But I'm not in love with communion. I love baptism when a person gives his life and starts it all over again. But I'm not in love with baptism. I'm in love with Jesus. And the reason that I love the rest of it is because that's who he is. And it points to him. And it just lifts him high. And when I can go there, then I know life is worth it. It really is. Would you bow with me?